0: This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... Foreign companies are investing billions of dollars, and communities are being forced to move to make way for these new coal mines.
1: Those who have been harmed by business activities have a right to seek effective remedy through effective processes. So-called fast fashion allows consumers to buy more, but they're wearing these garments less often.
2: The UN cannot regulate things at an international level that states already haven't agreed to regulate at a national level.
0: Hello and welcome to Inside Geneva. In today's programme, we're going to look at business and human rights. What is exactly the responsibility of the world's biggest, richest companies towards their workers and towards the communities that they actually operate in?
3: We look to government to protect our human rights, but business has a responsibility too. To help businesses, the UN Guiding Principles set out the three main things that businesses need to do.
0: It's exactly 10 years since the United Nations issued a set of guiding principles on this very topic. So what's been achieved in those 10 years? How much is there left to do? And is big business really taking responsibility for what happens in factories and along their supply chains? To join me, I've got real experts on this topic. Lena Vendlin is head of the Business and Human Rights section at the United Nations
1: Human Rights Office. There isn't a UN police that can come in and and punish companies. It is predicated on national governments doing what they have undertaken to do under their international human rights
2: standards.
0: Arvind Ganesan is director of Business and Human Rights at Human Rights Watch.
2: Ultimately, the responsibility is that companies or or governments need to respect human rights. And as
0: ever, our analyst, and maybe
3: sometimes skeptic, Daniel Warner. I do think that more and more young people are conscious of what they wear, what they buy. Welcome to you all. Lena,
0: I'm actually going to come to you first. Give us a bit more of that history. What exactly are these guiding principles? When the UN talks about business and human rights, what exactly does the UN mean? What's what's your definition?
1: Well, the UN Guiding Principles is the internationally agreed framework that sets out what are the expectations, the responsibilities of business when it comes to human rights. It also sets out and reminds states of the international human rights obligations they have to ensure that rights are protected in the context of business uh, activities. So that's uh, very much in a nutshell um, what it is. Um, the guiding principles also set out that those who have been harmed by business activities have a right to seek effective remedy um, through effective processes. So it's a framework, a common platform that applies to companies anywhere irrespective of whether they are big or small actually uh, and irrespective of where they they operate so in a nutshell that's what it is
0: arvin i remember 10 years ago when this was issued by the united nations maybe i'm being a bit too cynical but it struck me even then that it was a little bit late to be coming out with these things
2: um So I think in 2011, uh, the guiding principles came out after about a decade of civil society and some companies actually working on these issues independently. And I think our big concern, which was actually borne out, was that this wouldn't be an enforcement mechanism. So while it's critically important that there be a global framework and recognizing that companies have human rights responsibilities, it also compromise the ability to hold companies accountable. And and what I mean by that, in 2008, for example, there were hearings in the United States Senate to get a binding law in place on the oil industry and tech companies. And that had come out of of some of the tech companies' work in China and the oil industry's work elsewhere. And in 2010, the Dodd-Frank financial regulation actually ensured that oil, gas, and mining companies had to disclose revenue, and other companies had to disclose whether they were sourcing conflict minerals. So we were in a phase where there was a real movement by governments to regulate the conduct of companies. The guiding principles, what they did is they they created a global framework for all companies to kind of do due diligence, to acknowledge the state's responsibility as well as remedy, but they're not enforceable.
0: Danny, I'm going to come to you in a minute, but Lena had her hand up, and I think I do have to allow her to come in because Arvin said that the guiding principles kind of compromised work towards making business accountable. And Lena, your hand went straight up, so come on in.
1: Yes, no thanks. Yeah, no, I I would disagree with with Arvin um, on that uh, assessment. I think the guiding principles there it 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 anticipates and it in fact. Requires that there is what the guiding principles calls a smart mix of measures. Um, It does push governments, reminds them of how to protect human rights uh, in the business context is to have effective and enforceable laws, and ensuring that victims of of human rights related abuses have right to effective uh, remedy. And I think the the under the thinking that the guiding principles they weren't meant to be enforceable per se. That wasn't the mandate. So, you could say, well, it should have been a different mandate that the process acted on, but it reminds stakeholders, governments in particular, that they need to take action. And the fact that it's taken 10 years for a uh, momentum to be built up, I think, is is not despite of the guiding principles. And I don't think that, um, I think it is the kind of framework and the the momentum that the guiding principles built, I think arguably has contributed to more effective um, government action, not fast enough and not sufficient enough. And we can totally agree with that. But I think to say that the guiding principles has failed for something that they were not set up to do, I think it it might be a mischaracterization. And in fact, it anticipates and expects governments to regulate effectively and provide remedy. Danny, what do you think
3: of what you've you've heard so far? Well, I think we should make it clear that these are United Nations guiding principles. That it deals with states who have to regulate extraterritorial activity of companies domiciled in their territory or jurisdiction. It's not something involving companies only in terms of human rights violations, but the guiding principles themselves deal with states. Companies have other problems. There are other things about regulating them. Their roles are complementary, but the guiding principles themselves, I understand, to be only for states.
0: Arvind, I know you wanted to come in.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that we need to look at the context a little bit. So, first of all, the UN cannot regulate things at an international level that states already haven't agreed to regulate at a national level. But, right? but this is and, the age-old and...
0: problem for the United Nations. It, it's not just about business and human rights way here, is it? I mean,
2: but but I mean, if you go back to really 2006 through 2011 when the mandate predated the guiding principles, this was a discussion. Is this an opportunity to be more aggressive about pushing for binding rules on companies or is it more of a framework? And I wouldn't even call it a critique. The reality was it came out as guiding principles even though there was real momentum in different parts of the world to be more aggressive. And what that does is it gives companies a framework that they can endorse without having rules that they're held accountable to. And I think it's that second part where we need to evolve in the next 10 years. So now I don't think there's any disagreement that companies have the responsibilities articulated in the UN guiding principles. I think the challenge is how do you ensure people follow the rules, whether it's a a government regulating the private sector or it's the private sector being held to certain rules that hold them more accountable and the and the analog i would use is corruption for example which is a long, uh, long-standing parallel is in in anti-corruption law the state has the ability to investigate prosecute and fine companies but companies also have very explicit responsibilities that they can be held criminally or civilly liable for and that's where we need to move so i think uh, when I started this work 20 years ago, before there were any rules, there, we weren't meeting companies that said they had any human rights responsibilities at all. And certainly in the 2000s and after the gutting principles, that, that has changed dramatically. You won't meet any executive of any major company that says they don't have a human rights responsibility.
3: One, make a public commitment to respect human rights. Two identify and address your human rights impacts across your business, including your supply chain. Three, put things right and provide a remedy when things go wrong.
0: Lena, I want to bring you in there. I, for one, anyway, would like to give the UN some credit and suggest that as a journalist, I do know that there's a lot more, it seems to me, attention being paid to what the responsibility of business is along their supply chains, in the communities they work with, to their employees. I feel I'm writing more stories about that now than I was 10, 15 years ago. And I would like to think that's partly because of the UN and these guiding principles. Do you sense that as well, that there's more of an open door among the business community and more awareness of people to say, if I buy that, I want to know where it comes from, how it's produced?
1: I think so. I mean, I would like to think so. Um, It's also, of course, it's the business and human rights movement. So that's not only the UN, but the composite parts also of civil society, of trade unions who are pushing these things to the forefront and enlightened business leaders who see that it's in their actually their own interest to get on the right side of these issues and that there is a business case for it. So I, I think that the greatest contribution of the guiding principles was to clarify what it is we are expecting of companies. Because beforehand, it could be, oh, and was in many cases, a, a, a case of, of moving goalposts or the corporate social responsibility movement in business that self-defined what was their responsibility, which made accountability so much more difficult. The guiding principles, they, they are framed and premised on the fact that government regulation plays a key part of it, it doesn't assume that it's companies that regulate or, or define their own responsibility or just say, let's take, you know, you have to take our word for it in terms of doing the right thing. It is really understood to be that interface between what companies are doing and how companies are managing their own human rights risks and identifying them and mitigating them, but within a framework of law that is based on international human rights standards. So that is the design underpinning it. But obviously, again, as we know, the UN can't, there isn't a UN police that can come in and, and punish companies that are doing them. I think it is predicated on states, national governments doing what they have undertaken to do under their international human rights standards and enforcing them through those national laws and um, and accountability mechanisms that might be in place.
0: Danny, what do you think about about this? Because it, it strikes me that it's very dependent on the will of member states who are also keen to have successful businesses on their territory.
3: Yes, but I think there's a fundamental change in mentality here. We used to think about a company being responsible only for its shareholders making money. And now we're talking about companies being responsible for stakeholders. And we're all stakeholders. Uh, The OECD has tried to have certain things about multinationals and how they should behave. But I think there's a definite change in sensitivity that the companies have, that it's not just a question of making money. And plenty of organizations like Human Rights Watch and others are saying, look what you're doing to the environment. Look in terms of your labor. There, there's a greater awareness from civil society that it's not just a question of money. So, the guiding principles are helpful, but I think businesses now on their own are more aware that they have to be responsible for a larger public and not just in terms of how much money they're making for their shareholders.
1: ICMM's
0: enhanced mining principles define the performance expectations of a responsible mining and metals industry. Committing company members to respect the interests, culture, customs and values of local people
1: by adopting policies and practices that respect human rights and promote diversity.
0: Arvind, how do you see that with business? We know that nearly every, all the big multinationals have got a a chief executive of corporate and social responsibility and so on they they publish nice videos and glossy brochures about the good things they are doing is there a genuine commitment behind most of this or is it a bit of we need to show we're ticking those boxes
2: i think it varies. And and there's one other variable that I think we have to be very attuned to, which is generational change, both within the workforce and in the public is is changing expectations pretty dramatically. And and let me give you an example. If you are, say, 30 today, uh, so you're a young professional in, in a company or in the UN or at Human Rights Watch or anywhere else, your professional and adult life has been punctuated by two events. One is the 2008 financial crisis, and the other is the COVID-induced financial crisis. So as a young professional, you have seen institutions fail you and the leadership in those institutions not meet the challenges on a variety of levels. And that, I've talked to heads of companies, of, of major companies around the world, we see it ourselves, I think that's changed the expectation of what the workplace should be that it should reflect people's values as much as it should be a place to earn money and the like. And I, and I really see that. So I think we're also dealing with a whole new generation of consumers who, and, and employees and staff who have a different expectation of what is in the products they buy, where they work, and the like. And that's being reflected, too, in how investors, how companies, how everybody is dealing with these issues. So that's a big trend that's affecting this. On a company basis, it's case by case. And the reason it's case by case is some companies are really committed to doing the right things, but others are not. And the common thread in all of them is none of them have to, right? So the guiding principles lay out a framework for what you should do. And now what we need to do is put into place rules to make sure they do it. And then you'll see that. But I do think there are companies that actually actually do care about this and invest in that. We deal with some of them, and then there are companies that don't. But ultimately, you'll see very uneven performance by companies as long as there are no baseline rules. And then finally, just just to add, there's another trend happening that we have to be attuned to as well. So there are companies, say Nike or H&M, who have been quite vocal about being responsible in terms of not sourcing labor from Xinjiang and China and the like and the chinese government and supporters of the chinese government are actually criticizing them, boycotting them and taking measures like that when they try to respect human rights. So now you also have this trend of certain abusive governments trying to punish companies for being responsible. And that's another issue that we're going to have to confront in this whole space as well.
0: Lena Arvin's making a really good case for enforceable laws, you know, to ensure accountability. And if we look at some of the things we've seen recently, I mean, everybody saw this story about Exxon. Hi,
3: good to see you. How are you? Moments later,
1: Mr. McCoy will become one of the first ever executives to claim that ExxonMobil has aggressively fought climate science using front organisations to maximise shareholder profit.
2: Did we
3: aggressively fight against some of the science? Uh, Yes.
0: They have glossy brochures about how they're committed to the environment, committed to human rights, and behind the scenes, they were lobbying against environmental standards. So surely this is the the point where we get to say, look, some of these guys, they're just not going to do it.
3: Kids in the U.S. are eating
0: chocolate that's made by the hands of kids halfway around the world.
2: There's 1.7 million children employed in the cocoa industry in West Africa.
0: We know that there's still child labour in the cocoa industry. We know that in the the fast fashion industry, there are very abusive practices.
1: Well, you could also say that on their own, laws are not going to change that. Because again, we we were never in a law-free zone on these issues or haven't been for a long time. In the labor field, I mean, the ILO has been around for 100 years. Um, it's not as if we don't have a convention on uh, the worst form of child labor. It's, it's some of these issues, and, and that's why the guiding principles talk about the smart mix because we need both. We need good, enforceable, strong laws that protect the ground, but we also, there are also market based incentives. To affect change, and that's for example, um, there was the recent report on the role of the financial sector. So, how do we? What are the drivers of change in the market? And laws is one. But again, Arvin mentioned corruption. It's not as if we don't have both national, regional, and international laws on corruption. And I, I don't think anyone, uh, any of us, could claim that 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 has fixed the problem of corruption. So I think we do need to to look at this as some of the challenges we're talking about are systemic challenges. Child labour in the cocoa industry, for example, is a systemic challenge. There is the the International Cocoa Initiative that are working with stakeholders, including companies from the sector, to try and do something about that. But to just have a law to say child labour in the cocoa industry in the supply chain should be outlawed. And then you go to Ivory Coast and you go to Ghana. And then you, you, you talk about these issues in those terms. So I do think it's important when we're talking systemic change, transformational change, that have the adequate um, understanding of the role, the very strong role of laws, but also the very strong, you know, looking beyond laws to say, how do we confront systemic challenges where we need a lot of different actors involved to create that kind of change and enforceable change and sustainable change?
0: Danny, how receptive do you think consumers are to this discussion? I mean, we saw here in Switzerland a few months ago that voters actually rejected a corporate responsibility law which would have made companies responsible along their supply chain and would have allowed them to be held accountable in court for human rights or environmental damage. Swiss business leaders mobilised against that and the voters went with business.
3: Well, I mean, I think the point made previously about generations is is spot on. I think the younger people are perhaps more sensitive uh, than other people. And business, I mean, what is a business? There's a famous expression that companies have no soul to damn and no bodies to kick. Uh, And in a sense, they're kind of fictitious creations that we have. So to pin them down on an issue is more a conscience issue than it is a legal one, what we call soft law. Can we get a legal thing about the companies to respect human rights? I doubt it in the long run, but I do think that more and more young people are conscious of what they wear, what they buy, and there's pressure on companies today. The question is when they're in a region in Africa, Asia, or somewhere else that's a conflict zone, for example, how can the state control what's going on? How can anyone control what's going on? And I think that's a huge problem uh, that we're gonna see that's gonna be more and more difficult to have some kind of control of the companies. But I do think the companies are gonna make an effort. Imogen, your point about you know, a corporate social responsibility and executive vice president, I do think there's pressure growing uh, for them to be more responsible, although they have fewer legal obligations uh, under the law.
1: Lena, you had your hand up. You wanted to come in there. Well, just a, a quick point on the on the consumer and the generational change. I think there there is a lot there, but I also think we shouldn't hang, hang our head on that too much. Um, I mean, I I remember some years ago when there was the big New York Times exposure on the the Apple supply chain and and the Foxconn and the Apple share prices had never been higher and they'd never been sold as many iPhones and and iPads, including from the same people who we would think would have an awareness on that. So I think... Again, a lot of companies that are operating are not consumer facing and where we, it's the, the young people and the markets that are, or the consumers that we, we can't leave it to them to decide because they are actually not always particularly consistent when it comes to certain products that they really enjoy. It will very much depend on the product and it will depend on the, on the context and how close it comes to people giving up something that they actually like, even if it has been produced in, in conditions that are less than, um, than what we would like them to be.
0: Arvind, you wanted to come in and I wanted to ask you, You know, in the absence of laws, enforcement, how do we move this on?
2: I mean, I think, I think we're on the cusp of doing that. There's one thing I would just like to point out because when we have these discussions, it, it may get confused. I don't think any of us are saying that because companies or governments don't follow rights, that somehow the laws and standards are bad. Ultimately, the responsibility is that companies or, or governments need to respect human rights. It's not whether it's UN guiding principles or anti-corruption law. The laws exist or the rules exist, but people have to follow them and be held to account. So in that context, to your point, what we do know about say anti-corruption is that yes, there are corrupt people in the world or corrupt institutions that's why the laws exist but we also know that while not everything is caught a lot is right so companies do pay multi-billion dollar fines and have deferred prosecution agreements we've seen kleptocrats like the president of equatorial guinea have hundreds of millions of dollars in assets seized around the world for this kind of behavior and that just speaks to the need for a tougher law and the incentive to enforce them. So in this case, I think what we can do and what we're seeing, particularly in Europe, is people are starting to make due diligence, which is enshrined in the UN guiding principles, as a mandatory activity companies have to take. The next step, what we hope to see, is that companies ultimately have to be held accountable for whether they do that and do that effectively. And then finally, they need to be held accountable for the human rights problems that occur on the ground. And if over the next decade, we see that kind of evolution in thinking evolve, you'll see a big change in companies. And the final thing that people have to do is they have to incentivize good behavior. And that could be investors rewarding responsible companies by lowering the cost of capital for them. It can be governments creating tax credits and incentives to pool resources to comply faster. But there have to be things that hold people accountable. And I'll give you an example. Just a few weeks ago, the U.S. Supreme Court said that chocolate and cocoa companies cannot be sued for forced labor in the United States. So for all intents and purposes, it is legal to use forced labor abroad now because there's no legal remedy for it. And that's what we want to eliminate. And ultimately, the first step and and what the UN Guiding Principles do is let's decide that you actually have that responsibility and then let's work on how to hold you accountable to it.
0: You have answered my last question, Arvind, and so I'm going to give Danny and Lena the chance as well. And Lena, since you are the UN, I'm going to give you the very, very last word, if that's all right. So to come to you first, Danny, before we run out of time. you've listened to two people both committed pretty much to the same thing but coming at it from different different organizations what's your feeling i mean do you do you think that this is an effort which will show more success as time goes on what do you see
3: for the next 10 years i think the the key is the notion of extraterritoriality why should a company based in the united states follow certain rules in the united states but when it's functioning outside the United States, it does completely different things. And I think the ruling in Holland about Royal Dutch Shell activities in Nigeria or other places, those are the kinds of things I think we'll see more and more of. So in that sense, I have certain optimism, which is not always my position uh, about the future, but the key to me would be extraterritoriality.
0: Lena, I want to come to you and ask you, to kind of say where you'd like to see the UN going with this in the next 10 years. And what you'd like member states, because it's the thread running through this conversation today, is that governments make national laws. So they have a huge role to, to play, don't they, in holding their businesses to account?
1: Yes, um, no, I agree. I was going to come in as well on the on the Shell decision in the Dutch court because I think it is actually such an important one. Uh, so, so Danny uh, beat me to that. I think it is so important to understand and and be aware that business and when we're talking business and human rights, we're not only talking about business and indeed that the role of governments. We still live in a in a world where nation states. Have sovereignty and and the international human rights framework is predicated to a very large extent on governments doing what they commit to doing. And I think that there is a lot more that governments can and should do to live up to their responsibilities, including when it comes to how to effectively ensure that business operates with respect for human rights, whether within their territorial state or when they go abroad. And I think that this, in the 10 years of the guiding principles, we have seen a much more awareness, at least among certain states, and, and an understanding that this is something that states can legitimately ask their companies to account for how they operate when they go abroad. There should be also when it comes to accountability, the accountability how do you seek legal accountability when none can be had at the at the country of operation? We need much more logical and clear rules for where these kind of cases go, where there has been harm committed, and where local remedy is is not an offer so I think from from the u n point of view or what the u n should do again keeping The emphasis on companies, but very much also on on states. It's been very comfortable for states to say, well, let's talk about the companies. But I think really keeping that um, states are the the key owners, the key subjects of international human rights law, and they need to do better. Um, And again, the guiding principles are not, don't take value because they were adopted at the Palais des Nations in Geneva. They take, get value when they come to life through all the different policies and regulations that inform and incentives that inform how how companies are behaving and the UN across and outside of the human rights um, world need to step up on that in the next 10 years.
0: Okay, thank you very much all of you, Elena Vendland of the UN Human Rights, Arvind Gunnison of Human Rights Watch and our analyst Daniel Warner. Very interesting discussion. I feel quite optimistic, despite the obstacles that we've discussed today. And one thing which I was reading, we didn't quite get onto, but I will leave it in our listeners' minds, um, our business listeners, I hope, is that in the long term, respecting these human rights standards is probably good for your profit margin. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swissinfo. You can hear more by going to our website, Swissinfo.ch, including several episodes which have charted our path through the pandemic over the last year. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too, from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria to a look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines and, of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folkes. Thank you again for listening.
1: Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.